old pork chop express and take his advice on a dark and stormy night, all right? When some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against a barroom wall, and he looks you crooked in the eye, and he asks you if you've paid your dues. Well, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye, and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. Hello and welcome to 80s Movie Montage, and yes sir, the check is in the mail. This is Derek. And this is Anna. And on today's episode, we are here to talk about 1986's Big Trouble in Little China. That is correct. This is your pick? It is my, yeah, it is my pick. Either It is truly your pick. And from what I've heard about this movie, it's a movie that has kind of like cult status because it didn't do well in the box office and then kind of found this new life in home entertainment like a lot of movies, uh, even our last movie, Princess Bride did. Mm -hmm. But probably more so or, yeah, I, I would say more so than a lot of other movies. This is a movie that you either kind of like remember from the 80s and think it's awesome or maybe you saw it a couple nights ago and think it's <laughs> less awesome. I'd fall into the latter category. Well... <laughs> Yes, I think. The, and, well, okay, as far as really having just seen it for the first time of a few nights ago, that, uh, yeah, I mean, we mentioned it. Uh, we'll shortly have our good friend Owen, who had amazing things to say about this film. But uh, one thing that I mentioned is, you know, I've always known that you've loved this movie. Yeah. And so there have been multiple times where I have just found you watching it and so I've seen bits and pieces but I never saw the whole thing so yeah it was an experience it's such a ridiculous movie and I think I, I've I've come to realize that I just really enjoy ridiculous movies totally valid <laughs> totally valid I mean that that in large part is a lot of 80s films so yeah. so, so that that introduction is actually kind of an interesting part of the movie that we do talk a little bit more with Owen where uh, that that quote from Kurt Russell as Jack Burton mm -hmm. is is really like the intro to the character, and as the opening credits uh, roll roll out, he is also rolling out in his big rig, the Pork Chop Express, on his way to San Francisco. And initially, that was how the movie was going to start. They they did mm -hmm. put a, a new scene in that we'll talk about later with Owen, but I think it's um, kind of a fun way to get a sense that like this guy is kind of a how how would you describe Jack Burton? How would I describe Jack yes. Burton? I mean, he is kind of a doofus. Did that of... intro kind of tell you what you needed to know right off the bat? Did anything change in your opinion? Uh, uh, oh, that's actually really good. No. Um, yeah. I would say that they did a really great job of introducing his character and having that character remain very consistent to how he was introduced throughout the course of the film. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I mean... I like that after shortly after his uh, the check is in the mail line he does they they give up this uh, his his whole it'd be a pretty crazy universe if we were like okay well he's an idiot but he's kind of open minded I like that <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about how this crazy film came together let's do it okay so uh, yeah and again we we do actually do a little bit of a deeper dive with Owen with some of these different people who are involved with the film not just the people involved in the film but there are 
just like there are in a lot of the movies that we've gone through, there are a lot of issues today looking through the lens of 2020 mm-hmm. where you look at one of these 80s movies and you think, ooh. Yeah. We do get into that yeah. a little bit more. We do get into Owen. that. And yeah. he's he's great in like just breaking it Giving down. Giving context. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So always starts with the script. And in this case, we have three gentlemen who get credit okay. for creating this script. So here's what I gather is that, and also from some of the reading I did about how this all came about. So Initially, the script was written by two gentlemen. Uh, their names are Gary Goldman and David Z. Weinstein. And oh. they were kind of, well, it's okay. Other people have that name. Okay, just necessarily- checking. <laughs> just checking. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, and they were kind of newbie writers. Uh, and again, I won't I won't go into it because we, we actually have quite a bit of ground that we covered with um, Owen. So want to get there sooner than later. But... Uh, it, it, it wasn't there, uh, as far as being able to go into production with like what they created. Mm -hmm. Um, real quick though, what I always find interesting is, you know, I kind of take a look at their other work and as far as, um, Weinstein is concerned, like this credit is pretty much it for him. That is, is, that's kind of interesting. I would have imagined this would have just, uh, just sky's the limit after Big Trouble. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, I found that really interesting, too, because actually a lot of the writer in all facets of the films that we've covered, usually it seems like the people involved have really gone on to have quite extensive careers, but it's also completely valid. I don't know what direction he went into, but that's kind of it for him. And then as far as Gary Goldman is concerned, he he has some other credits that um, it kind of I feel like in a weird way kind of falls in line with the the work that he did here. Okay. So another of his credits is Total Recall. The original with yeah. uh, Arnold mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger. Okay. Yep. And uh movie Navy Seals. <laughs> I've never seen it, but I that uh was Charlie Sheen in that? I think so. Okay. I think so. And then he's not credited, but he did script revisions on Basic Instinct. Okay. So that's just a couple of his credits. Um, and then once, uh, you know, I don't know, powers that be decided that they wanted this film to move forward, they brought in a writer by the name of W.D. Richter. And this is a person who has uh, quite a bit of street cred. So, uh, and also, I think it's kind of interesting some of the work that they've done in terms of like how that influences where this particular script went so for instance they're the writer behind invasion of the body snatchers from 78 okay uh 79's dracula which one was that i don't think i've seen that one i there there are a lot of dracula movies there's a lot of dracula movies out there so that's why a little bit of dracula in this that's exactly yeah that's exactly why i included that so um so yeah so 79's dracula he's like look i have some great ideas (laughs) Um, Needful Things, which is another kind of dark. Oh, um, I'm very familiar with Needful Things, the Stephen King book. Okay. Yeah. It was a great book. It was an interesting movie because the, like the guy running the shop was also the, uh, main father from The Exorcist. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's that guy's name? That guy's name. Got it. Yeah. Perfect. But then also what's funny, and I always think this is hilarious, when you see certain uh, credits for an individual and then you see something completely outside of that. He also wrote Home for the Holidays. 
That makes sense. So it's like, yeah. oh, okay. Well, the guy's got range. Yeah. Uh, so he came in and did a rewrite on on what those other two writers had done. And so that's kind of how the script came together. All right. And like I mentioned in our chat with Owen, had no idea before sitting down to watch this with you a few nights ago that this is a John Carpenter film. Uh, yeah, was completely surprised by that. And this is a gentleman who... I mean, huge name in cinema. Uh, Even now. I mean, yeah, he's still sure. involved in like the next Halloween movie mm-hmm. coming out. Mm-hmm. Halloween Kills. Yep. I think. Yep. So, Which yeah. got pushed for reasons. Sure. So, uh, yeah. And that's that's how I know him. I know him primarily as a horror director. I always think of two movies, two different like franchises, I guess. But two movies when I think of John Carpenter. And that would be Halloween and the thing correct yeah yep and that yep two of his uh credits that i have listed here i mean i love halloween of of those uh horror franchises that again we kind of go down that path with owen but between friday the 13th and freddy and halloween which kind of all somewhat started at the same time and have gone on to have crazy longevity halloween's my favorite yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I, I think there's something it, – it's got a relatively lower body count than a lot of those mm-hmm. uh, older older horror movies, and I've always appreciated that in a horror. I mean, one of those things that kind of, like, separates the line, I guess, between thriller and horror is sometimes the body count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree And there's, with that. Um, there is a body count of maybe 48 people in Big Trouble in Little China – I think I saw that somewhere. Oh, really? Yeah. I would think it's actually higher. Well, some of those guys were okay, and they just got up and left. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of gunfire. Yeah, so but they're a lot not of very good shots. Taking... <laughs> okay, okay, fair. So Carpenter, um, besides Halloween and this film, uh, he was the director behind The Fog. Uh, we talked about this with Owen, both Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. Mm-hmm. The Thing, Christine. Okay, another uh, Stephen King, mm-hmm. one of his earlier books that launched him into fame. Uh, that was a good movie. Yeah, yeah, Starman. That was also a movie that I just could never get on board with. <laughs> they Live and Village of the Damned. Some they of Live may, may be featured on this podcast. It might be. Okay. It might be out of the list. Okay. We'll see. Another Derek pick. <laughs> Which is fine. I... I Honestly, I'll do it just to get that one quote in. The uh, I'm here to. Well, I yeah, I chew, I, chew bubble I was gum giving and you kick the ass, spa- and yeah. I'm all out of bubble gum and yeah. There you go. I was giving you the space to do the quote, so oh, um, uh, you know, there there it is. There it is. Okay, <laughs> we we do talk about that. Uh, our our call with Owen, it dives deep into Big Trouble in Little China, and it like really branches off when we start getting into Carpenter's works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's all good. We we always find a way to bring it back to the film. So even when we go on our tangents. It's what we do. It's what I we mean, do. This is called 10-hour 80s movie podcast. <laughs> okay, so who this film was shot by. So this is funny, at least to me. I got a chuckle out of it. It's uh he, the cinematographer was a gentleman by the name of Dean Cun Cundy. Mm-hmm. Okay. That sounds right. I don't know him. So here's what's funny to me is that I go to his IMDB. And I'm reading his bio, and here's how his bio begins. Dean Cundy reigns supreme 
as one of the best, most prolific, and talented cinematographers to ever grace celluloid with his often striking and accomplished photography. This guy so sounds I, amazing. Well, yeah. And so I'm like, all right, all right. You know, like I, I'm immediately uh, what else cynical. Does he have? Well, here's the thing is that I was completely wrong. So I, I throw shade as soon as I see this first sentence for this guy. And then I scroll down mm-hmm. to actually see his credits. What's and I'm like, worked on Air Bud? Oh, oh no, he's, he's legit. Um, so he has over 100 credits as cinematographer right now. All right. Um, on, and he's still he's still working. He's still with us. So that's fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to, you know, always in chronological order, kind of list off some of these credits of these people. So one of his earlier credits, I just had to have this, Satan's Cheerleaders. Okay. Love it. Yeah. Um, and also, okay, so as we go along, this guy had a relationship, um, professional relationship with, with Carpenter in terms of he was the uh, cinematographer on Halloween. I mean, we saw this with Spielberg. Yeah, and this so, happens like, a lot. Yeah, these this guys, happens a lot. they find and their guy and they stick with him. Spielberg, uh, he'll be kind of referenced in just a moment. So Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York. He did another film called Jaws of Satan. I is just, that related I, to Cheerleaders of Satan? I don't know, but another really great title. Okay. Is that the Spielberg connection, Jaws? No. Okay. Uh, he also did Halloween 2, The Thing, and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which we talk about with Honestly, Owen. like, I would rather watch the remake of Poltergeist in that movie. <laughs> so then, one of our favorites, he did Romancing the Stone. <laughs> That's awesome. Isn't that hilarious? And then get <laughs> this. Is. So... Keep going. He did all Back to the Futures. Okay. Pretty okay. Good. Pretty so good. pretty impressive. That uh that little description isn't so out of place anymore. Exactly. Is it? Who framed Roger Rabbit? Well, that was incredible. Incredible. I mean, for its time. For it was a lot of reasons. Yeah. yeah. Death Becomes Her. I had to include that one because I just absolutely love that movie. Well, yeah, a lot of people do. Uh he was the cinematographer on Jurassic Park. Oh shit. That's a... Uh... That's legit. Apollo 13. This guy is fucking good at, yes! at what he so does. So I was like, wow, I take back all of my cynicism because <laughs> this guy really is yeah. one of the best Honestly, cinematographers. Honestly, we should like, see if we can contact him and apologize. Yeah, I know. Like, I we're felt, sorry I forever. I kind of bad. <laughs> we should have never questioned you. So, all right. So that's, uh, that's who shot this film. Moving on. So I mentioned this briefly with Owen. It's always a little suspect when you see multiple names credited for certain roles. Um, I mean, that actually happens a lot with scripts when you see more than, I don't know, maybe two names on a script. It's always a little iffy um, because that that typically is indicative that, like, you don't have a clear voice coming through. You had too many people trying to put Band-Aids on a script. Yeah. Um, same thing here. and But I think, actually, we kind of talk through maybe why this happened because there's three editors credited on this film very unusual yeah highly unusual uh so and all three it this was very interesting to me because all three have like really great pedigree so i was like oh that's so interesting we did talk about how they really rushed production of this film so maybe that has something to do with it i didn't actually dive into you know trying to find reasons why they had three editors on here um but beat out that golden child yeah, exactly. So that that very possibly could be the the reason why. Very innocent reason. Um, but of those editors, so the first is Steve Morkovich. Mm-hmm. Okay. I buy that. 
So uh, this gentleman, he's cut films such as Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. That one was uh, ridiculous, but not quite as ridiculous as the best one ever, which is Jason, Jason X. X, where he's like in space. and if, God, So good. That is the dumbest fucking movie I've ever it's, seen. It's so bad. But, but that's in all the right so ways. Good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He also cut Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. Yeah, I think I may have seen the first one. Those are the older... I didn't even know there was a second one. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I remember the title. As soon as you said two, I'm like, oh, that's The Secret of the Ooze, I think. Secret of the Ooze, Necessary Roughness, Broken Arrow. That was a good film. That, that was yeah. Uh, yeah, underrated. Con Air. That's almost as dumb as anything else I've ever seen, but... But it, yeah. It, it's had longevity. I mean, people love Con Air. I feel like Con Air and The Rock, both with Nicolas Cage, yeah. mm-hmm. they, they feel like they're they're in the same universe. Right, right. And it's a dumb universe, but it's the same universe. I know what you did last summer. All right. Yeah. So this guy, he has some interesting credits. Also on this film, a gentleman by the name of Mark Warner. Yeah, that's the easiest name you're going to get to pronounce in these <laughs> the competitors. Easiest. Yeah. Um, okay, so among other films that he's cut, Rocky Three. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite of the Rockies. Um, I I do like Rocky Two a lot, but Rocky Three, of course, is the Eye of the Tiger. Right. Rocky, exactly. That's so. probably the only reason why. Um, Forty Eight Hours, Staying Alive, Weird Science. Okay. Yeah. The movie. The movie. Yeah. And then um, also. Great range. Uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Okay. Yeah. Leap of Faith. Dolores Claiborne. Another Stephen King. I thought so. Yeah. Devil's Advocate. And Lara Croft, Tomb Raider. None of those movies have done very well. (laughs) I mean, the Lara Croft movies. Yeah. 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 Although, I mean, I'm sure it was technically a financial success when it came out. I don't know. Okay. Last gentleman. I'm going to give this my best try. Edward A. Warshulka? Yeah, I, that's how I would say it. I really greatly apologize if ever I mispronounce these names, but um, do it, try, try and roll hard. Try and roll hard here. Yeah. Okay, so among the films that he's cut, The Running Man, Child's Play 3. The Running Man, underrated movie. Or is it just rated? It's pretty ridiculous, too. <laughs> I don't know. I never saw it. Um, Village of the Damned. So, again, he's been on a couple of uh, Carpenter mm-hmm. films, Escape from L.A. Vampires. John Carpenter's Vampires. Oh, my apologies. Featuring James Woods. My my apologies. Yeah. And then he's done some... Um, he It seems like he's transitioned into television because he's cut for Castle, The Last Ship. Don't know that show, but Berlin Station. So okay. so it seems like that's where he's gone. Castle was that uh, Nathan Fillion Correct. one. And the last ship was like, I, I think it's Snowpiercer in the water, but on a battleship. I don't think it's anything like that, but wow. that's what I just Okay, that's an interesting pitch. That's for, my... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on to the people who, who are in the film. Um, chief among them, you've already mentioned Mr. Kurt Russell. So he plays Jack Burton. You know what I didn't really realize about Kurt Russell when I was, like, looking at his IMDb, I didn't realize that he came into the industry so young. Like, he very much was a child actor. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. I mean, when he was 11 years old, he uh, was on an episode of Dennis the Menace. Wow. Yeah. So he, he's he been in this industry right. for his whole life. Um, 
He was in something called The Travels of Jamie McFeatures. I am not familiar with that. As I'm not either. I had to include this one because I just thought it was so funny the way he was credited. He was on an episode of Gilligan's Island and he was credited as Jungle Boy. Wow. Yeah, I just thought that was funny. I've se- I'm positive I've seen every single episode of Gilligan's Island. Really? Yeah. Because it... Like we grew up in a in a era when like you would turn on the TV, and I mean, whatever it was, was on, on like, yeah, that's what you watched. That's what you watched. Yeah, because you're like, oh, maybe I'll go stream something. No, there was no option for that. So that's why I've probably seen every episode of like I Love Lucy and Gilligan's Island. Okay, fair. But I don't remember uh, Kurt Russell. Well, Jungle Boy. I'm not sure if he. I'm not going to look for it. Starring starring <laughs> role in that episode. Um. So we. I think we talk about this. I mean, he had kind of a relationship with Carpenter. He was in like five of his films. So outside of Big Trouble, he was, you know, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., The Thing. thing. Yeah. Um, You know what I didn't know? And this, man, this Disney movie when I was a kid was a real tearjerker for me. The Fox and the Hound. Oh, if you think the Disney animated feature of The Fox and the Hound is depressing, just go look up that that story on Wikipedia and learn more about the book that it's based off of. No, thank you. Because that Disney movie is literally the Disneyfication of that story. I don't want to. No, I can't. That's a, that's too much for me already. Yeah, yeah. So I think he's the he's credited as the voice of Copper. So I think it must be okay. the adult Copper. Yeah. Which I was like, oh my god, that's crazy. Yeah. Um. You mentioned the thing. Okay. One of my absolute favorite roles of his, Tombstone. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought yeah. you were gonna say three thousand miles to Graceland. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no. He's he's great in Tombstone. I mean, he, that there are so many amazing performances, and for him to not only like equal or measure up, but to be like the guy yeah. in that movie. Yeah. Even with like Val Kilmer really being the guy is. Doc I mean, th- you don't have a Tombstone without Doc Holliday, no. and specifically Doc Holliday as played by Val Kilmer, yeah. but. Uh, from what I've heard, and I'm not, you know, it's not an 80s movie. We, although we do go on our tangents, um, <laughs> I I have heard that Russell actually was kind of really the director behind this film. I'm I'm not familiar with the person who is credited as the director, but from what I've heard, because this was really like kind of Russell's project, Tombstone. Yeah. Okay. And so I I I think that you know the point I'm trying to make is that he probably had something to do with the way that Kilmer not to take away from his own accomplishment of how he played that role but like it all came together between the two of them yeah so um so just a great film so moving on actually you kind of uh brought up a connection well I guess the point I'm trying to make is that he is in Forrest Gump but he is uncredited he is okay as who do you think he was I, I don't know he was I the honestly... voice of Elvis. Oh, okay. And right. that seems to be a thing with Russell. Is that? Being... Oh, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. And he and... also has a thing for, um, like, vengeful justice, bringing sheriffs in both Tombstone and Bone Tomahawk. That is an, that the only reason why I even have that movie on here is because of you. Let's just get Can that story out of the way. Can I please tell yeah. the story? Because yeah. <laughs> it is so good. Okay, so sidebar. I was out of town 
for a bit. And this was I, during October when we generally will just consume all of the Halloween. Hor- yeah, horror, yeah. anything horror, Halloween. Okay, so I'm out of town. Derek is continuing with watching like Halloween movies while I'm gone. We're checking in with each other every night. And Netflix I call- would not shut up about this movie. Netflix's <laughs> algorithm is like, hey, man, watch this. So I call him, and and we're talking about what he's watching, this movie called Bone Tomahawk. I'm not familiar with it. He's telling me who's in the film, and he keeps mentioning the name Kirk Douglas. It was not Kirk Douglas, because he would have been like 190 years old. And I'm... I'm kind of confused. I'm like, really? Kirk Douglas? Because he's telling me about the storyline, which is pretty intense. It was very intense. Holy uh, cow. Yeah. If for anybody who, you know, I'll let you if you want to on your own. I'm not going to go into detail about what this one particularly horrific scene that Derek described to me. Yeah, no. Like, all joking aside, like, be forewarned. Graphic violence. Yeah. Maybe not... Maybe not the best movie. It's it's okay, but holy shit, there's there's awful things that you will see in this movie. So which just confused me even more because I was like, Kirk Douglas is in this movie because yes, he would have been about a hundred years old, and Derek's like, yeah, yeah, Kirk Douglas, and so finally I have to like look it up, and I'm like, baby, maybe it's Kurt. Do you Kurt Russell? Maybe mean Kurt Russell? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was, just, it was Kurt Russell. It was, I I love that story. It's. It's great. You know what old Jack Burton says at a time like this? (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) All right. Um, So a couple other of his credits before we move on. Love him in Stargate. Oh, yeah. That's another movie I really like. Uh, He's in Miracle. Yep. He's Mm -hmm. a great Herb. Last name. Forget. (laughs) It's okay. Basically, he's the coach of the the team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So he plays Ego. Uh, in Gardens of the Galaxy, part two. Volume, yep, yep. Yeah, volume two. Volume not part two. two. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's great as in that role. Really, as ego. Yeah. really good, really good. And then a film that we came across was it just last year, or the year before? He's oh, yeah. Santa Claus. Yeah, in the Christmas kind of cult. And and he was a pretty good Santa. He's a great Santa. Yeah. And it was so fun to see Goldie Hawn as a cameo as Mrs. Claus. And uh, they're doing another one of those. Nice. So we'll get more of him. Yeah. Okay. Moving, Moving on. on, Kim Cattrall. Gracie Law. Gracie Law. Uh, so you probably have always, since you love this film, you've probably always associated this actress with this particular film. I, of course. No, I mean, I know, well, when I first saw it, I didn't associate with her sex in the city. But now. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. is That's, slam dunk. Yeah. How I know. Samantha Jones. She's not really the same character. Gracie Law is not Samantha Jones. No, no. That's why she's a great actress. Yeah. So I, yes, that, and and you know what? I, I don't mean to take away from any of her other accomplishments because in looking over her uh, line of credits, she's she's been working ever since Sex and the City went away. And so she's done a ton more. It's just, That's you just know, what you identify her yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. And I, I hope that actors, actresses, understand that like if they are beloved as a particular character that that's an accomplishment because you made that much of an impact on the, the two audience. examples where i think that's not so much the case daniel craig hates being james bond yeah and sir alec guinness mm-hmm. never really got mm-hmm. star wars he certainly though uh well maybe a story for another time i i have listen to other podcasts i'm trying to think of which one i heard it from in any case uh he got some points 
on that film. Yeah. So he did okay. So he was fine with it. I'm <laughs> sure was... Daniel Craig is, has uh, been okay as exactly. well. Exactly. And I'm sure that Kim Cattrall is totally fine being recognized uh, so frequently as being this person from Sex and yes. the City. So uh, a couple of her other credits. So she was on, a, I just, because I think these things are fun. She was on an episode of The Incredible Hulk. Nice. The yeah. old one with uh, yeah. Wolf Regno. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in Police Academy. Yeah. She was, this is the other film that I know her from, from the 80s Mannequin. Well, yeah. And particularly her involvement with uh, Police Academy. There were some movies that she was in before Big Trouble in Little China that actually quest- made them question whether they right. wanted her in that role. Right. But she was great in it. She was great. Yeah. Um, the Bonfire of the Vanities. Okay. So, and and lastly, as we have talked about already, Sex in the City. Oh, yeah. Okay. So moving on to Dennis Dunn, mm-hmm. who plays the character of Wang Chi. The hero of the movie. Yeah. In fact. Yeah. The yeah. hero of the movie. Um, so... Uh, honestly moving forward like all of these other actors that i'm going to bring up extensive uh careers and and credits to speak of but among some of his highlights year of the dragon Mm -hmm. the last emperor midnight caller and then that show that was on um unfortunately it it was prematurely but but for very good reasons stopped because there was um unfortunately like deaths to the horses involved that show luck oh okay do you remember that no, that was on a, with uh with dustin hoffman okay a couple years ago oh yeah no, I don't it was about that. like uh like horse racing and the whole deal so i i know that like we, we talk quite a bit more about this with uh with owen but uh one of the things I thought was interesting about Dennis Dunn was his excitement for being involved in this project because at the time in the 80s possibly even now it would have been relatively rare for a movie like this to have so many Asian mm-hmm. actors involved in the project mm-hmm. I mean we know we it's you don't have to go very far to think of some that have been like a real problem as far as like Ghost in the Shell mm-hmm. so he was really excited about not only the fact that there were going to be so many Asian actors involved in the project but that like looking at his role in the movie, it's a great role. It's a great role. So yeah. yeah, I don't really recognize him from a lot of other things, but I always identify him as as Wang from Big Trouble in Little mm-hmm. China. Mm-hmm. And speaking of really great talent that got to be a part of this film and really put put their full talent on display, James Hong. Yeah, Lopan. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. amazing. He's he's so good at like playing these two different like versions of kind of the same character. Very much like Dracula. I'm sorry, but I <laughs> I cannot like I was like oh wow so so many similarities between uh, and and you know Bram Stoker's Dracula yeah uh, in Coppola, particular yeah yeah came definitely after this so maybe they were inspired by this performance because there's so many similarities between the way that they portray these two characters but... the way that he uh, portrays like. 12 foot tall his his height increases every time someone references him like this seven foot tall guy eight feet tall 12 feet tall but the way that he portrays that character like you really get the sense that he is this like timeless kind of evil Mm -hmm. wizard person Mm -hmm. and old man lopan when he's going through kind of the mythology of his own character to uh wang and jack you know he's like this more more modern version even though he's so old and he kind of looks over at the at the um closed circuit tv and sees the other people kind of like looking for them 
and he, he, I think he says, this is really pissing me off to no end. And that line was amazing. It was so great <laughs> to hear this like crotchety old guy. This is pissing me off to no that end. That was a fun line that actually did prompt a, a like laugh out loud moment for I, me. I almost heard a guffaw. <laughs> So, I mean, it's one of those things that this movie does so well in kind of blending some like more serious elements mm-hmm. and then in quickly interjecting some humor to keep it fun. Yeah, exactly. And at this point, this gentleman, 91 years old, mm-hmm. still working, Yeah, which isn't surprising because as we bring up with Owen, literal jaw drop moment when I saw that he had 439 acting credits. That's insane. Insane. So, you know, I try to pick out highlights when we bring up these people and it was so overwhelming to try to, you know, cipher down like what, what to even mention of his. So I'll, I'll do my very best. Um, You know, he had, and, and here's what I also noticed about, um, maybe through through the credits what i imagine the trajectory of his career i mean he just seemed to be up for for you know anything i mean work. he is yeah for job, work. I'll do some work. exactly he is on so many different shows in particular um but okay so we have the man from uncle chinatown kung fu airplane he had a bit role he was in the movie airplane yeah wow. mm-hmm. he had a bit role in blade runner yes i remember him in blade runner he was the um the cryo eye doctor guy, I think. Okay. I think, maybe. He did a lot of, like, the, you know, primetime 80s, uh, like, soap opera type shows. Like, he was on both Dynasty and Falcon Crust. <laughs> both of those. And then he, you know, also bounced daytime soap opera. So he was on Days of Our Lives for a while. Apparently, he also was in The Golden Child. Yo, yeah. No, he was. He, yeah. Different kind of role. Very different. Okay. He was in Tango and Cash. So another Kurt Russell mm-hmm. film. Kurt Douglas. He was on Doogie Howser. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then also he plays the voice of Mr. Ping in the Kung Fu Panda yes. films. Yeah. I knew about that one. So, I mean, just, and he is still working. Like, this guy is amazing. I mean, if you scroll through his credits, it's like everything you see. Oh, yeah. Nash Bridges, X-Files. Okay. Bloodsport 2. Oh, I'm I'm so sorry that I left that How'd one out. How'd you leave list. that one out? <laughs> okay, so moving on to Victor Wong, who plays Egg Shen mm-hmm. uh, in the film, and there's a lot of overlap because some of these other films that I mention also required um, a large cast of Asian actors, and so he also was in Year of the Dragon. He also was in The Golden Child, also in The Last Emperor. He had a, I mean, his his role in The Golden Child wasn't completely dissimilar from from Big Trouble in Little China. He, I think his credit is just the old man. Okay. But he is, in fact, the father of Eddie Murphy's love interest and also kind of like a, not a mentor, but he he's put in place to provide some very specific kind of assistance to Eddie Murphy in his journey of saving the golden child. Okay. Yeah. I'm so glad I have you here because (laughs) I would not have been able to uh, add that, that info. Um, You are definitely the, also the golden child expert in this relationship. It's not a, I I don't think it's as uh, enjoyable overall of, of an experience as Big Trouble in Little China, but it was it was fun at the time. I mean, it was 
it was really weird to see a movie like that with Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. in it. I mean, because he certainly brought, like, Kurt Russell brings a lot of a, a comedic element to his portrayal of Jack Burton, but Eddie Murphy was just, like, a straight-up comedian mm-hmm. in this kind of, like, fantasy adventure kind of movie. Also with, uh, what's his name, Charles Dance? Oh, From, yes! Yeah. Game yeah. of Thrones. Yeah, he's the kind of like ultimate evil mm-hmm. demon in uh, He's very good Golden at playing Child. a bad guy. Yeah, he he is. Very good. Okay, so moving on to Kate Burton, who plays Margot, Greasy Law's friend, and from what I gather, like a news reporter in the film. And she's one of those where like as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh yeah, I recognize that actress. Yeah. And same, she's she's been in so much um, before and after <laughs> this film. So uh, some of her credits, The Ice Storm, Unfaithful. She's done a ton of TV. So she's been on The Practice, Rescue Me, Law & Order, Veep. Okay. One of our favorite shows. And it seems like she gets on pretty well with Shonda Rhimes because she is both in Scandal and Grey's Anatomy. In fact, I play. I think she plays – I'm not familiar with the show that hasn't been one of my go-tos. But I think she plays Meredith Grey's mom in the show. All right. Uh Ellis Gray. So in any case, she's she is very busy as well as all these other actors are. Okay, moving on to Donald Lee, who plays Eddie Lee in the film. I really loved some of his credits that I saw. So I we're gonna have to go back to this one. He's in One Crazy Summer. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we'll have to take a look at that one. He's in the follow-up to the fugitive US Marshals. <laughs> so he's in that yeah, one. I didn't... Which yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love Tommy Lee Jones, but like there was a magic. We could start a whole another podcast just called Unnecessary Sequels. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Um, I... he... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say he's a bit part in the Avengers. Interesting. Yeah. Which the, the original, the first I Avengers believe so. movie? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really liked his his role in this movie because like Wang was, was a... He had some comedic elements, but he's kind of like more of a straight player. He's Correct. like trying to save his fiance and his uncle, who I think like runs or works in the restaurant mm-hmm. that they kind of all meet at. Yeah. He is kind of like with like assisting him. And Eddie is like, he understands all of like the, the old war that Wang and his uncle talk about, but he's also very much just like able to recognize how ridiculous a lot of it is. Yeah. And when Jack Burton, I think at one point says, like, he feels like he doesn't belong. He's like, you don't. Yeah, I really like this character. Yeah. In particular, I he's probably outside of maybe Gracie, like the one that I kind of personally jived with the most. I liked seeing him on screen. I liked all of his scenes. Um, so, yeah, he did great. And then also he also was for a time on Days of Our Lives. Interesting. <laughs> so a lot of people, a lot of these people do um, that kind of work. So I just want to give a quick shout out. Because uh, we've already gone through just like there's so many people who are involved in this film, but I want to give a shout out to three individuals: Carter Wong. Oh yeah, I was hoping you're gonna do this. Yes. Yeah. First of all, look up Carter Wong's uh, IMDb page. I implore you, please, because his he has possibly the best IMDb headshot body shot that I've ever seen for for an IMDb page. It's phenomenal. It's just him flexing with no shirt on. <laughs> so kind of along with that, he plays Thunder mm-hmm. in this. So Carter Wong, he plays Thunder. Peter Kwong, he plays Rain. Yeah, I always think of uh, Rain as 
the jumpy sword guy. He's the guy okay. that can jump and fly through the air for like 40 seconds or so at the end okay. of the movie. Long hair, uh, yes. swords. That's, uh, I mean, really, it's like the guy who inflates and blows up. That's Thunder. And then it's the yeah. guy who eventually would become the Mortal Kombat character known as Raiden. In this movie, he is. He's Lightning. Okay. He's James Pax. James Pax. Yeah. Yeah. And those so, are the three storms. Yeah. I, I just, before, so I was researching the film before I saw the film. And then when I saw what their credited names were, I was like, oh, that's, that's awesome. Rain, I lightning, love, and thunder. Yeah, I love that. So. But when they first show up in the movie is when you first realized like, oh, what, what is this? <laughs> yeah. It's a little, I mean, there's just a lot happening. They have the, the most unnecessary move of all time where they coordinate this move where they each pull out like this kind of like short curved knife sword yeah. type thing and then they do a front flip when they land the front flip they release them and they just take out a total of three people there's an army facing them and they're like let's go through this whole process we'll take down these first three guys and then we're really going to get it started i just thought that was a hilarious exhibition of their power it's really fun to see you get so excited about this movie <laughs> Like the guy just like he just transported himself by holding on to a bolt of lightning and he's like, I'm gonna stab this one guy. I love it. He could have gone a uh, full Thor, God of Thunder. Sure. Just... Anyways. Anyway. Okay, so that rounds out um for now the people that uh that were in front of the camera who who were in this film. Moving on to film synopsis, and as we do, I It's a short one. It's a short one. Uh, let me just read it off. This is what we pull from IMDb. A rough and tumble trucker helps rescue his friend's fiance from an ancient sorcerer in a supernatural battle beneath Chinatown. Look, that might be one of the most accurate synopsis descriptions we've ever seen. Because what I like is that it says he helps rescue. Yeah. He, yeah. Is, he is the helper in this he movie. He is the helper. Yeah. And I think given just how much happens in this movie and um, I would say trying to do like a one sentence synopsis of this one is like that's a that's a big ask. They, they you performed have to, admirably. Yeah. You have to wrangle a lot. And I think that they did a really great job yeah. of really um, kind of whittling it down to its core. So so good on whoever wrote this. <laughs> Um, as far as montages go, I don't know if there's anything that really shows like, because this all happens in like a pretty quick amount of time. I mean, how many days do you think pass? I mean, it might be like within a 24 hour yeah, span yeah. of time, actually. Although the, the closest you get is the, the intro with him driving through the hills and over the golden mm -hmm, gate. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, that's true. Like. Just kind of giving us this like atmosphere of the kind Chinatown of just, area. Yeah, giving us a sense of where we are. Yeah, you see people like he's like unloading whatever his cargo was, and you see like shop owners moving stuff around, and he's, you know, they're drinking and playing some kind of game, gambling. So there's like a montage leading up to all that, but that's really it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Yeah. And um and so yeah, it's it's really effective in giving you a sense of where we are, the fact yeah. that we're like in San Francisco specifically, the story's going to be in the Chinatown area, um kind of seeing what life is like uh for that area. It takes place in two areas really. 
this Chinatown area that you see during that opening montage, and then an airport. Mm. Like, you go to the airport to really get the story moving. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what airport they were in where there were, like, no other people really around. The parking lot was pretty empty. That never happens. <laughs> but, <laughs> maybe, yeah, that's Maybe now. It. Maybe now it happens. But. That's true. Um, so, yeah. I mean, as far as, you know, well, you know what? Now what? that I'm thinking about it. Oh, what? Because we, we do broach this with Owen. I was... I'm trying to think, you know, when we were talking with Owen, I don't know if you really got a chance to talk about, you know, how you... We already explained that I saw this really for the first time a couple nights ago. <laughs> yeah. um, so the first so, time that, that I saw this movie, yeah. I... No, I don't think we discussed that. We talked um, kind of about, about how Owen first saw it. Um, I don't think I remember seeing this in the movie theater. I remember uh, watching it probably as a rental and then on like cable or whatever. And what I remember watching it is just how, like how annoyed my dad was at some of the special effects, like in particular towards the, the end fight mm-hmm. when Wang is fighting uh, rain mm-hmm. and they're like both flying. They jump once and they're just like back and forth sword fighting. And that was the moment where he's like, I'm done. <laughs> he just, he got. He made it that far. He made it that far with all the ridiculousness of the movie. But at that moment, he just checked out mentally. Fortunately, it was almost over. <laughs> so that's kind of what I remember of like the first time I saw it with him. Uh, I remember watching it a lot with uh, my friend Jason. Mm-hmm. We would watch it. We would do that little move that like the good guys would do. I'm doing it right now. Okay. Yes. Where, like, yes. They have the little yes, hand yes. Symbol, yeah, like, yeah. I'm on your side. Kind of like a little bit of an owl kind of looking. Yeah. Type. yeah. Yeah. That was a, a running joke with us for uh, quite a while. And I think even if I did it right now, he would know like, Oh, big trouble. Little China. Aw. <laughs> so I that's, will... those are some of my uh, earlier memories of it. That that's great. And I, I don't have anything to share because <laughs> Like you first I, saw it two days ago. I saw it two days ago. All right. Well, should we just uh, jump into our conversation with Owen then? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. We are here with our good friend, Owen Croak, who is also a fantastic feature screenwriter, TV writer. And welcome, Owen. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. We are super excited to have you. Derek, I, Derek has been, what, what's the phrase? Biting at the, I've been chopping really, at the bit. I've been really excited. Champing at the bit. Yeah, <laughs> is that is. what it is? <laughs> it is yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder why I always thought, because you know, you chomp on, and in any case. It's true. Uh, okay. Big Trouble in Little China. I don't know if you knew this, Owen, but, uh, you know, so we screen all of our films ahead of doing mm-hmm. the podcast. Uh, this is next to blood sport <laughs> and, and i you can maybe sense the theme here because this was derek's pick um the first time that i had seen the film in its entirety the other night last night last night yeah and so i have opinions about what i experienced i think <laughs> but and, and i'm gonna say that it's probably a different experience seeing it for the first time in 2020 versus something that sure. i remember seeing a very long time ago and yeah yeah well excellent segue because that's exactly what i was about to ask owen what what so as we usually do with our guests i was very curious if you do have 
memories of like your first time seeing this and and how old you were and what your first impression was of the film so that's actually it, it's it's funny that that's where you start because you know this is an 80s movie podcast mm -hmm. and one of the reasons why i picked this was i felt that it was very indicative of that time of filmmaking mm -hmm. um because it was very much we were like early adopters of vcrs in our household and early adopt and like we had cable and this is a movie that just lived in those places mm -hmm. and i feel um because I, i'm sure you'll talk about it. it it was not a big success at the box office yeah uh, in fact, I think they talked about the, they thought the studio kind of buried it. Um, they did. They didn't really know how to market it. They didn't know what, <laughs> like, what is this? Yeah, that's actually, it's really interesting that you're bringing that up because that's a huge, um, similarity with the last film that we covered, The Princess yeah. Bride, um, for the sa exact same reasons. They just really didn't know how to market that film. And yeah, from what I read, same thing with this one. They didn't really know where to go with it. And even though I guess the, Initial screenings of it were really positive, and both Russell and Carpenter thought it was going to be a big hit. It was not. They put a lot more energy towards uh, aliens, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. yeah. Well, this actually, I, I went back and looked. I couldn't believe that this came out on a July Fourth weekend. <gasps> that this, I don't think that, I realized that. Yeah. That's crazy. July July second, nineteen eighty six. Yeah. Uh, but um, so yeah, this is a movie that was just i couldn't tell you what the first how old i was when i saw it i would have been mid single digits and it was mm -hmm. just that this was something that was like regularly in the rotation on hbo and my aunt who bought like a vcr and was six thousand dollars because she had a <gasps> high pressure job where they paid her that kind of money what? um, <laughs> um uh like taped it off of hbo and so we just like had that for years and this was it was what sticks with me most is how right up my lane this type of from like an early age for this type of like comedy and genre entertainment was and that okay. was not something you saw a lot of at that time it's happening more now and i realized because i had not watched this in a number of years and i I went and got the collector's edition steelbook Blu-ray to get the entire experience before submitting. Nice. Off of you. <laughs> I, I we appreciate, appreciate that. So much. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I sort of sat down with this really, and I was like, you know, because I was like, oh, you know, this was a fun movie. I don't know if it was any 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 big shakes, and I and I still see its limitations, but also I realized just how much of like my creative persona is directly lined up with this story that is entirely a just a yarn there's mm -hmm. kurt russell jack burton has no real character arc in this he, and, and i think that the running jag, yeah. the running joke is that he has no reason to be there <laughs> he's just yeah, a complete complete doof who's in the middle of this yeah <laughs> i mean he does um, uh, he does spoilers kill david lopan he he does and and i i've got my notebook in front of me with this and <laughs> and i actually like wrote down with three exclamation points and underlined 
It's all in the reflexes. That's what we're paying off. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually, yeah, that's, yep, that nailed it. That's it. That was the whole payoff. It was great. It was great foreshadowing. Yes. I mean, like he always told his ex-wife, it's all, he he never drives faster than you can see and it's all in the reflexes. Yeah. Oh, so like that, this was, so that like that like just sense of fun in a movie in, in the making of a film and like going back and looking at this, I, all of these guys, I whether they thought they were like making a, somebody was going to be a big hit or not, it's just so clear that they are having a lot of fun. Um, like John Carpenter, who is pretty well into the middle of his career at this point, seems to be having fun. Kurt Russell, who um, like reading some of the material and watching it seemed to have been much more self-conscious about his place in the business at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, seemed to be ha- having fun with it. All of the Asian actors just seem to be having a blast. I mean, we could talk about individual people. I'm sure you're going to talk mm-hmm. about a lot about James Hong, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. was a, a character actor that I've always, you know, found to be like the guy who just brings it and going back and looking at him in this and seeing him, not only do a great villain, but also like lay a lot of pipe with a lot of complicated exposition and yes. just like getting it <laughs> right out, even with like a hundred year old man, old age makeup on. It's just like, you know, guys like that do not get a lot of accolades in the business, but damn, does he deserve it. <laughs> I'm, I'm so impressed with him for a lot of reasons. I mean, honestly, probably of anybody in the film. And, you know, as I typically do ahead of like when we um, speak to our special guest, you know, we kind of go over like the people who are part of the film. And I, I can't believe that he has over 400 (laughs) acting credits on IMDb. Like I... I felt over because, you know, we try to like highlight some of the more memorable roles of anybody we talk about. I was like, I don't even know where to start. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't know what to do with this guy because it's so massive and impressive. And James Hong, the podcast. Yeah, seriously. Like we we could absolutely do a podcast on him. And um, you I was know, really it's like, impressed. He's got all of those credits. Um, but I was like thinking about this. He's. A very talented actor. Not only has those credits, I gather that he started like doing USO shows in World War II. Okay. Um, So, yeah, like really like a lot of long history in the business. And but so much of it was like being the what is not the waiter, but um, the. Yeah, the Mater D in like the Seinfeld Chinese restaurant episode. Yes. Where he's there. As kind of a, you know, a joke Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the one thing I feel obligated to address about this movie um, is it is a movie made by Caucasians, mm-hmm. largely for Caucasians, that traffics in some very damaging Asian stereotypes. I, yes. Not in a way that I feel is malicious, though it's not for me to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is very much of that piece. Um, and Lopin is very much like Fu Manchu type right. characters, the point where he's like preying on white women. And when he preys on Asian women, it's because they have white features. So, right. yeah. uh, you know, that's 
an ugly thing. And I don't think you can separate that from it. Uh, it has to be addressed and it's not for me to excuse it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, this was a much meatier part that I feel like almost anything that actor had gotten to do in his career. Right. And he mm-hmm. just seems to relish every minute of it. And going back and looking at, you know, some of the interviews he did, this seems to be something that he feels like was the highlight of his career um, because he got so much more to do. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's, that's kind of the double-edged sword of the way race is in Hollywood and has been for a lot of years. So, you know, you can't, you can't take the ugliness out of it, but it is appreciated that so many actors um, got a chance to shine in ways that they did not in other places in their career. So, you know, a mixed yeah. bag, <laughs> well, a think, mixed uh, bag on that front. <laughs> one of the things that we've, that we've like, I guess realized, but we probably already knew going through a lot of these eighties movies is that there, there are, few if any of them where watching them now in 2020 you don't realize like oh yeah that we use the word problematic it's a lot we use that word a lot a lot well well, it's funny yeah it's like looking back at 2020 certainly what was funny i didn't realize until i like watching some of the special features and looking up on this i gather there was some pushback even in 1986 about this um like there were some Asian uh, representation and Asian rights groups that, you know, really tried to come down on Carpenter and the studio a bit. And uh, Carpenter in particular does not seem to have reacted well to that. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. It, it, so even at the time, I think there was kind of a sense that this was pushing it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um at the same time, I don't know if you're going to do Remo Williams on this podcast, <laughs> but I credit them is, for actually have I credit them for actually having Asian actors. <laughs> I know I know what you mean, and uh, it, that movie came up. I don't know because it, that movie, if if Big Trouble in Little China was not a box office success, and it's kind of like this niche cult classic, mm-hmm. then I don't even know what that would make Remo Williams the adventure begins because it's even less well-known than, than um, big trouble in little China. If we do that movie, you'll be our guest for it. Owen. (laughs) I don't don't know if we want to do that to you, but yeah, that's that's something I could definitely tell you. I have not watched it all the way through. It's just somebody like, again, getting back to like how this movie like had a life and how it was discovered. Mm -hmm. So many of these movies, they were just like on the background. And I think it says a lot about, you can talk about whether it's good or bad, but movies don't have a life today, I feel like, the way they did 30 years ago. And, and I feel like this, the 80s was a, a sort of niche time for that because video had happened, because cable was happening in a serious way where, you know, um, I'm sure 20th Century Fox was going around to little syndicated stations all over the country, whoever was doing this. And what they would do is they said, well, you can have Empire Strikes Back, um, but you need to buy the rights to these 50 other movies that we don't know what to do with. And one of them was Big Trouble in Little China. So 
at four o'clock on a Sunday, you could turn on, you know, WPIX in, in New York and Victor Old Little China was on and something you never would have seen at the theater. It's like, oh, wow, this is a weird little thing, huh? And, you know, the Netflix al- algorithm, I don't think gives you that. Uh, right. So, no, it's, it's, so the discovery is something I feel like we've kind of lost. And like, obviously, I don't want to be an old fart here. Um, no, I agree thing. with you. <laughs> I I think what you brought up to me, first of all, I completely agree in terms of films having a life beyond the initial release and perhaps the claim that they get. It to- totally, 100%. I think you're right about the reasons um, in terms of the way that people consumed media and, and how much media was being created for consumption yes. then versus now and how it was distributed. Yeah. I mean, actually, you know, I, I mean, we could have a whole conversation. I think it would be fascinating to talk about the differences, but that is something that I think about a lot about, you know, films. I mean, certainly past 2000, as good as they might be, they just don't have that life that keeps going. They get lost. Yeah, they get lost. And I think part of it is because of the way that we consume and also the volume yeah. of what we have now. There's just too much. And 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 I I mean, that makes it sound as if I am I have negative feelings about that. I think it's fantastic that creatives now have there's so many more opportunities. Yeah. 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 So I don't, it's not that it's, it's a negative thing per se. It is what it is. And I appreciate that, you know, people can do YouTube and they can do all these other little things that, um, you know, back in the day, if you didn't have the backing of a production company or studio, you're just out of luck. Uh, so, so I think it's wonderful in a lot of ways, but I also think that it, um, you know, just adds to the whole, uh, people get overwhelmed. People have lack of focus. They have something new and shiny to take their attention away from something else. Um, so, you know, we might have something, this is not the example really that I want to bring up, but you know, like Tiger King, it was the only thing that people were talking about for about two weeks. And so we watched it. So we, we watched it. Um, but then, you know, already that's out of, it's out of the consciousness well, of people. I mean, it it's is, there. They're, they're um, going to be making a scripted series. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Rob Lowe. Is that who And they're? Kate McKinnon as Carol Baskins. Oh, really? Yep. Interesting. So sorry, sorry to, uh, quite to, a tangent. yeah, to, to tangent that away from you, Owen. Um, no, but I, I, completely I think, agree. sorry. No, I, no, I, and yeah. I think it actually speaks to another thing that kind of amazed me when I went back and looked at this was in addition to there being so much, there's a lot more of movies and entertainment that is less than a million dollars budget that could be shot in the room of somebody's house. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more of, $200 million. We've got a new Star Wars and, and Avengers franchise going on. Um, again, this, you know, I think the budget was something like $20, $25 million for this. Yeah. I looked it up. It translates to a little less than $60 million um, today. I cannot imagine anybody anywhere putting up $60 million to make a movie like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at this and I mean, I was just the production design on this. Just when I went back and looked, it's like, oh, my God, the there's I'm okay, It's not. 
it's it's not Lawrence of Arabia, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but it's like, wow, there's a lot of attention to detail going on here. They put together some amazing sets. Uh, you know, some of the locations they shot in, certainly, you know, the effects work um, is what it is, but it's also pretty, pretty good for the time and being a mid-level type mm-hmm. of film. And that's another thing that, again, I don't, you know, things change, things pass, but it was a reminder of, a, of the type of filmmaking that just does not quite exist in the same way and some of that's gone to tv some of that you know you'll see a lot more money spent on a limited tv series than i think any of mm-hmm. us would have imagined um in our more formative years uh but yeah i so like is, I, going into this thinking oh this is a fun little trifle um it's still that but man there's a lot of charming stuff here and a lot of um, pretty great work um done by the people involved we haven't even well we've talked about a lot of things but the writing on this um primarily by uh wd richter who uh i know uh as uh also the director of uh, buckaroo bonsai across the eighth eighth dimension and i think (laughs) yeah And and so I think I think he went right from the failure at that to uh, wanting to to taking this on for a rewrite for hire, um, and so just sort of that fun uh, sensibility and the attention to uh, weirdness and to fun little uh, banter and moments. Um, that going and and Carpenter and and Russell sort of getting that entirely and going with that style and leaning into it uh, every step of the way. Um, and again, I think leaning into it according to them to the point the studio just not only had no idea to market it, but I think act became actively hostile to it at a certain point. In time. I I think they did. I mean, there were there was a lot of butting heads between Carpenter and the 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 studio had at that time that I think. <laughs> ended up having uh, repercussions as far as how much Carpenter ended up working with them in the future. Oh, well, it's, it's, it, so I think that the moment that, that I take away is um, they did the first screening for the head of uh, production at Fox and he watched it and he watched the whole thing and then the lights came up. He's like, well, that uh, uh, Jack Burton doesn't seem like to be much of a hero. He doesn't really do anything <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, so, yeah, <laughs> And I guess they had to go back and shoot the opening with um, Egg Shen, uh, Victor Wong, and uh, another favorite 80s and 90s character actor, Jerry Hardin, um, which has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, does not make sense in the context of the rest of the movie, (laughs) to the point where I was watching it, it's like, wow, they have this framing device, but they only have the front end of the frame, they never get back to the back end of the (laughs) frame, and that was entirely because they were forced to shoot it. Because they they wanted one of the characters to say what a hero Kurt Russell was in order to sell it to the audience. And I would, um, uh, I would argue <laughs> that if they had just started the movie with him in his truck, the way that it starts immediately after Same. that opening yeah. scene, it honestly would have been better. It would have been at the worst. It would have been fine. It wouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. There would be no difference for me. But 
I, uh, I, I like Kurt Russell, Jack Burton as being this like bumbling, not actually the hero that kind of contributes, but he's really just the sidekick throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think he's, he's, you know, he's, he's the sidekick, but let's be clear. Um, he very much gets to have all the fun, all the most fun in this movie. For sure. With, yeah. For with sure. the possible with the possible exception of like the big fight where they knock him out for it. Um, just so yeah. because yeah. I think because they acknowledge, well, it's like, we can't have Kurt Russell up on wires uh, fighting with these guys. Um, that earlier, uh, that earlier fight also when he like, he tries to get his knife out and he flings it across the room, runs over to get it. By the time he gets it, Wang has already defeated all of the enemies. And mm-hmm. he just kind of like jumps out like, ha, everyone's done. <laughs> So they play that joke a couple times. Yeah, and and again, you you know, Anna, yeah, Anna, you're a writer. I'm a writer. I feel like so much of the feedback that we get is, well, you need to build up the motivation um, for your lead character. You need to you need to build them up as you know what they what they're great at, why it's so amazing to watch them, and there's a lot of truth in that. But also, I feel like movies like this were a reminder of a sensibility where, no, no, sometimes it's fun to watch somebody that's out of his depth just be out of his depth for 90 minutes or two hours and see how that plays out. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you bring up a a good point because I'll admit that, like, in viewing it, I... You know, I'm kind of kind of looking at it with that critical eye because of what you just said in terms of being a writer and seeing this story unfold and seeing character arc or lack thereof. And I'm just really curious, and, and this kind of ties into your earlier point about the budget of the film. Do you think that it really was John Carpenter who because I, I I didn't even know. This is this is how unfamiliar with this <laughs> film that I was. I did not know that he was the director of the film. So I'm just curious because of all these things that we've talked about where maybe it was a bigger budget than really was necessary, although it did have a great production design. And, you know, there are kind of these like story elements that are somewhat absent from it. I mean, do you think that had it been anybody else attached that it wouldn't have been a go or do you, or do you have any mm. thoughts on that at all? Because like, that is kind of what I was thinking is like, this only got made and I'm not I'm not trying to throw shade at the film. I promise I'm not. But like it it got made because of John Carpenter. And I guess probably also Kurt Russell signing on to it. Well, actually, I think um and, and Kurt Russell talks about this a lot, that he was he was not really a movie star at this point yeah. in time. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things that we associate with his career had happened, but they had not, they didn't have a lot of prestige. Like I think the biggest thing that he was in before this was uh, overboard and overboard was sort of a sleeper hit. Like it made mm-hmm. a serious amount of money, but it was not like, Oh, a hundred million dollars opening weekend sort of money. Mm-hmm. It just like kept building and building. Um, and I think, if the story on this is is one that I recall where the original writers wrote this sort of hybrid cowboy San yeah, Francisco like gas. Yeah. It wasn't even a Western because it was San Francisco, like in the gas oh, lamp era. Okay. Era, okay. Era. Um, but it, it definitely was the hero was a cowboy riding into San Francisco. 
um, and stumbling into this. Uh, so I think somebody bought that script and then I always get fascinated by this. They bought it and then really realizes, oh, this is kind of crappy. Well, we'll shelve this for a while. <laughs> and so this was something that was sort of sitting around for a while. And I don't know the full piece of like how Carpenter got it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Car- Carpenter ended up bringing Kurt Russell in because if you look at the names that they, I think they say they wanted for this, it's like so ridiculous. I think like Clint Eastwood is on the list. Yes. Is, yeah. yeah, I did see that. Yeah, I, I honestly could not really even imagine Clint Eastwood in that kind of like Hamish kind of role. Super where, campy. Yeah, because Kurt Russell had to be like really aware of here's what my character is and I'm really mm-hmm. going to embrace it. Yeah, and I he mean, does. I don't think Clint Eastwood would have been nearly as entertaining in that, that type of thing. That is something that, um, for sure, I give Russell huge props for is that he absolutely threw himself he was into this. Jack Burton. Yeah, I mean, it. Um, you know, it's meant to be camp. It's meant to be silly. It's meant to just be fun. But had he not really committed to that character, I feel like it would have been unwatchable because if you kind of even get any kind of undertone of him. Well, I mean, Go it's, ahead. no, it's, it's interesting that you bring up his portrayal of, of Jack and how that impacted the movie overall, because famously there was talk of either a remake or a sequel starring Dwayne, the rock Johnson. And I wonder if he was playing, if, if he was just straight up playing kind of that same Jack Burton character, do you think he would be able to pull it off? Or do you think, what, um, what do you think? well, I'll throw it to you first, Owen, what do you think? So I think you're hitting on something in that there's no vanity in this performance. Yes. Like that's everything way it. He, he absolutely leaned, leaned into what was in the script. It's like, Oh, this guy's kind of a doof. So I'm going to play it that way. Um, and I think the rock does some of that, but then you also hear about, he's sort of very mindful of the brand mm-hmm. of yeah. uh, the rock. And I don't think this is a character where, at least as it is now in my mind, is something that's really about a brand. It's about, you know, servicing the character in the script. So I remember, I you know, I know they talked about a remake a few years ago. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like anything's happening with that. This doesn't seem like something. It, again, it's of its time for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't seem like something that you're going to get a lot out of trying to do it again. Um, no, I, I agree. And- other, other than yeah. there being a, um, like the, the effects have obviously come a long way, but I would argue that the practical effects work in this movie in a way that I, I don't know that like heavy use of CGI would really make it a better film. And all of the things that we've talked about that, that would be a real issue today with respect to race that would it wouldn't really be the same movie from a lot of perspectives and in some ways maybe that would be better but i think in a lot of other ways it's like why like it's like poltergeist all over again (laughs) i have two two quick thoughts i mean in the most simple answer i have is i feel like okay if this hypothetical in the rock uh came on for a reboot or a sequel or whatever it just wouldn't be as much fun like real simply because I don't think he could give himself to the role in the same way. He that was Russell the uh, tooth fairy, right? That's true, but <laughs> never saw that. Um, and then secondly, so I'm going to say something a little controversial. 
in in entertaining this hypothetical, it actually makes me think of what I have seen of the trailer of the new Ghostbusters. Okay. Because, you know, very similar scenario. Like we have this like classic film from the 80s and it's not nearly on the level of camp. But like in terms of the level of special effects and just the silliness of it and the whole bit, everything I saw from the trailer and maybe it just like wasn't cut well, maybe it's not portraying the film accurately. It like seemed to take itself so seriously. And I was like, oh, it's not going to be fun. And so I go ahead. Yeah, no, that's another one where I feel like it's something that we've lost in our storytelling Mm -hmm. where and and I, I, I heard. John Hodgman actually say it's the first time. There's no reason for Peter Venkman, um, <laughs> Bill Murray, to be in that movie. He yeah, has no, no goal. Totally. Yeah. He has no goal. He doesn't seem to want anything. He's just hanging out and going along with whatever his friends do. And we just don't seem to abide that anymore. I don't. Th- I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I don't. I don't fully understand it. Um, and and I feel like you lose some of the fun of that mm-hmm. wherein and you know people talk about and ghostbusters and I, I listened to that episode because it was a i, I thought you guys did a great job with it well, like you. so much <laughs> so much of of that was these characters in this situation and being a very new york movie mm-hmm. <laughs> and and, mm-hmm. and very specific jokes about living in new york at that time um that we don't seem to it, it, we we don't do that level of quirk in our big our big releases anymore um that, that's actually a really great <laughs> way of putting it and specifically a great word and with the quirk and <laughs> i i totally agree with you and i mean i don't mean to just like wax nostalgic about 80s films but i do feel like but it's basically what we do it is what we do <laughs> and i just yeah there you know, as much as I might become critical of a film for certain, you know, plot holes or lack of character growth or whatever the case may be, I do agree with you that, uh, you know, several decades removed back in the 80s, there was a little bit more of a leniency and acceptance that like, okay, we we don't have to have everything be so strictly motivated because it kind of takes away from the magic and the fun. And, and I, I know I'm overusing that word, but it's I don't know how else to put it like it, it just takes away from kind of the lightness and, and the silliness like sometimes silly is mutually exclusive from you know uh motivated so it yeah I don't I don't know but that that and I don't mean to throw shade or get too um too off track with the whole Ghostbusters thing but that's why I do agree with what it seems both of you are saying and that this is a film of its era. It really can't be, it's lightning in a bottle. Can't really be made again. And anything can be made again, but I strongly advise they don't. Right. Right. Well, I think that's kind of the paradox of it because, you know, we could say we don't want to wax nostalgic. That's very much what our culture does. I mean, the reason that we're talking about that, a remake being bandied about is because it's the property that had a name mm-hmm. and somebody wanted to mine that for whatever uh, they could get out of it, which is fine. But I think what you're getting at is we're going to take the wrong things away. The yes. story here is a good thing 
to sort of hang a lot of fun moments on. But the story is kind of not much of anything. It's, you know, evil wizard, you know, st- kidnaps a maiden and we got to get her back. Oh, okay. Um, it's everything. It's all the, it's all the character. And then, you know, again, the quirk that happens around it that makes it interesting. And we kind of take the plot without taking the rest of it. Um, so I think, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's pretty self-contained. Like there's, you have, you know, the evil wizard who was cursed a long time ago and is defeated. And like evil is basically defeated by the end of this movie. So as far as a-, a uh, You're forgetting or, the yeah. monster in the truck. No, no, I'm not. I'm not forgetting that walking monster. And you know what's so funny about that monster? Even though I had never seen this film in its entirety- Honestly, I probably just saw bits and pieces from when I would see Derek watching it at some point. That monster, I was like, oh, I know that monster. Yeah. Like that, I don't know how that seeped into my subconscious. I'm just not worried about that monster. Like I'm I'm pretty sure that Jack Burton will be okay. He'll say something like, (laughs) what the hell? Or yes, sir, the check is in the mail. Or somehow, like you can't, there's no way you could build a whole sequel around this like rogue monster that hung on that hitched a ride on his uh on his big rig no absolutely not and <laughs> i think getting back to your earlier point and uh one of the reasons that i don't think you could make this again is so much of it was there was a script that was okay someone came in uh to rewrite it really uh put their own stamp on it then john carpenter came in kurt russell came in uh, the production people came in and they were all sort of just left alone to make this weird movie. And nobody actually stopped to look at what they were doing until the lights came up and the studio had realized, oh my God, what did we spend our money on? Can you give me like a 30 second intro? Maybe? Right. <laughs> yeah. And so if you like spent a hundred million dollars or $200 million on a remake, somebody's going to be watching what you're doing every day and they're going to be focus grouping every little bit of it and i'm not i'm not shading that okay i'm i there is a lot (laughs) (laughs) boy we're we're kind of coming after the rock (laughs) i that was all derek i'm fine with you i'm I'm fine with you sir (laughs) i love you titan games yeah, Titan Games. Yeah, love him in <laughs> yeah. a lot of things. I just uh, didn't love much of Skyscraper. I just love him in reality. I got no qualms with yeah, him. Yeah, I okay? love him in reality. Yeah, he can, he can, he can eat his well. twenty-seven salmon fillets every day and and live a wonderful life. Whatever the hell it is he does, I I don't want to fight him. He's, he's you, a good you can dude. Fight him, Derek. He's a good dude. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, so like diving a little bit deeper into Carpenter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, again, I don't know how I had that like blind spot that he was part of this film. Um, I am familiar generally with his work. He, to me, is one of those like annoyingly talented people where he could kind of just do everything on his film. If he could duplicate himself, he really could just do the whole film on his own. Um, and as far as the music is concerned, I definitely could pick up. I was like, okay, this is John Carpenter who, who did the music. But also, and this is something that kind of ties in with uh, like a common thing Derek and I were bringing up when we were watching it last. When I was like listening to the music, you tell me if you didn't get this. I got a also really strong first Terminator kind of. Yeah, there were some times, I think, where, yeah. 
Yeah. And I'm not saying he's ripping anybody off, but I kind of got like, and that's something that I started noticing about the film. Fuck you, James Cameron. Yeah, I'm not. No, really, truly not. But kind of got that vibe. And also I was noticing whether it was intentional or not, like a lot of connections to like other films. Um, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, Derek. There like are we, elements. Yeah, we were just kind of like creating a list of elements that this movie like has a bit of Dracula story. Yeah. yeah, a bit of Dracula, a bit of Goonies. Mm-hmm, like there are all mm-hmm. these other like either stories or movies where uh, it just yeah, it was it's interesting. See, it was interesting to kind of see like sometimes you know you can't even you can't extricate the influences. I mean, everything's kind of happening at the same time in the same decade, but outside of 80s influences did you ever notice owen like that was something i picked up on right away that this was very similar to kind of like a dracula story oh yeah i i think that's kind of common um well not i think that there was a a great tradition of pastiche um where you know particularly when you're turning out uh entertainment on a pretty regular basis and like that studio assembly line i think it's it's easy to say oh it's this meets this mm-hmm. so there absolutely is the the dracula element of it um uh, i think carpenter also and i i'm a great admirer of his talent uh, a lot of horror movies aren't necessarily my thing um mm-hmm. but yeah. So, but he's certainly one of those guys that that likes to reference his own influences. I think um, Halloween Three is a movie that that's had an extended life that I don't fully understand. But I, a lot of people talk about the fact. Uh, yeah, yeah, that really? movie. That movie. Yeah. Like that one, uh, I don't need to see again. Like, I mean, yeah. we, Derek. So Derek is a horror guy. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily horror horror gal but in hooking up with him well <laughs> to be kinda... fair like I, I like some of the uh classic horrors but i'm pretty there there are some i guess sub genres that i will that i don't have much interest in but i like some of the classic thriller yeah. slash horror some of the mm-hmm. slasher movies are fun just because they're so like comical with yeah. how but but the ones that get too serious or are too intense. I'm not. not I'm not going to do a saw. Oh, I'm not going to do a hostel. I'm not into I, like I, the torture porn yeah. stuff. Basically, that, that I could do. Oh, I could do a whole multi-part, um, you know, '80s movie montage spinoff with you guys just on the Friday Thirteenth and the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Not oh, necessarily so talking like those. So those are movies that the films themselves in a vacuum. I don't know that I like. I love that they exist because <laughs> okay, okay. The, the fact that, and again, this is a tangent, but between 1980 and 1989, they made eight Friday the 13th films. Mm-hmm. And that was just like a license to print money for that span of time. <laughs> These, yeah. This thing that started with, I think, seven hundred thousand dollars and kevin bacon and a couple of, and a couple of other people like in the woods in upstate new york yep um again it's a whole culture around those little films that blew up and became um things you know, just became these cultural touchstones 
for a brief period of time that we keep going back to. And you just, again, we talked about this. You just can't recapture the, I don't know if you call it magic, but whatever the moment in the zeitgeist was that that was mm-hmm. happening. So that's like the cultural aspect of it is much more fascinating to me. And all the work, um, if you ever read about that, went into those, how those movies happened and uh, New Line was known as the house that Freddie built for the longest time because that was mm-hmm. the movie that just made them into a real studio. The fact that they got, until they got absorbed by Warner Brothers. Um, but I think what you were hitting on earlier with uh, the music and it's kind of um, illustrative of this point in that every yeah everything of the 80s sort of the 80s oozes out of it too. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that kind that, that synthesizer sound was very big. And I think what what Carpenter excels at was within that parameter, he was able to be creative and make music that was not your favorite thing, but at least interesting right. to listen to. And yeah. and so you can see him do that well and say, okay, he's doing that well. And then there are other 80s movies that were tied into that synth that just did not do it well. Um, I don't know if you, how much you're into uh, 80s Michael Caine, um, but there's this- <laughs> That's a really movie. interesting question. Well, there's this, movie, <laughs> there's, this, there's this movie called Educating Rita, which is okay. sort of like um, a, a Pygmalion or My Fair Lady sort of story. And that has the absolute worst synthesizer soundtrack of anything you will ever hear. Really? On what is supposed to be this, it's this, this like sort of light uh, romantic comedy. Um, I got to look up. I got to look up. Yeah, that. we have yeah. a lot <laughs> of stuff video to, look to be looking at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the um, title sounds familiar. I know I've, I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever seen it, though. I just yeah. don't think Michael Caine and Synthesizer are in the same film. That's because the, the Synthesizer is so overbearing and out <laughs> of place with this film. But it was like, oh, these synthesizers, it's so cheap to do a soundtrack. Let's just do it. And again, Carpenter was was a person who would say, okay, I could make this sound like music and not just sound like something coming out of a keyboard in a store. <laughs> yeah. So, well, okay. So one thing that you're sorry, sorry to interrupt, but like, I'm so no. curious about something that you brought up. So when you were talking about these other horror franchises, and again, I don't mean to get mm-hmm. too far from big big trouble but um you know i think we've seen both with the friday movies with the friday the 13th movies they've definitely crossed over into camp for sure would we all agree with that i don't know that they ever had to cross over i think what we consider camp maybe has evolved but if you i I could never take any of them seriously i mean that's the thing and that's kind of the arc the argument that i never get about those films is like what people complain. Oh, I don't like that that Freddy Krueger became campy. Like, what, what, what? I'm sorry. You want this very serious movie about <laughs> a about a child molester that seems to have access to unlimited demonic powers that uses it to kill teenagers? Not the that. hardest thing in the world to do. <laughs> okay you're both you're both right but do you think though when you think about the three majors so you think about the halloween movies and you think about the freddy movies and the friday 13th movies i feel like of those three 
Halloween still has tried to maintain some semblance of like groundedness. They they have, I think. Um, so well, the, Halloween yeah. Halloween definitely tried to do that. Uh, again, I'm not the biggest fan of these movies, so I don't know that I'm the target demographic for it. Uh, the main thing that I always like latch on to with the Halloween movies is the Donald Pleasance, Dr. Loomis character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I, the reason why I latch on to it is this story is probably not true, but it is so amazing that I, I wish it to be true. And if I feel like if I tell it long, I tell it enough times, it will become true. But Donald Pleasance fought in World War II and was uh, shot down early in the war and went to a POW camp. And because the our friends, the Nazis, had a good supply of slave labor, they treated their white prisoners very well and just like sort of locked them up in the camps. And they just didn't have anything to do. And so he spent the war in a POW camp just sort of hanging out. And he got out and he was an actor before the war. He went back to acting after the war. And there was a disorder among the soldiers that came out that they noticed where they had been idle for so long that they just had to work. And so Donald Pleasance in a very long career, I don't think ever turned down a job his entire <laughs> life and just did every job that came along, no matter how ridiculous it was to the point that I believe he died while shooting Halloween six, the curse of Michael Myers. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> Wow. wow, that and that was a fascinating story. That is so interesting. Well, okay, and um, yeah. and yeah, he def he definitely brings a groundedness to those films. And what I'm curious about, so like I don't I'm trying to come to a point. It's hard sometimes. But do you feel for how much of this how much of this are you going to cut out or we're just going to have like a unedited six six hour bonus we're going to go for it but you're going to be shocked by how little we edit how little we edit (laughs) um but i feel like first of all so in comparing those three huge franchises and the fact that halloween has stayed the most grounded and kind of has maybe taken itself the most seriously and i don't necessarily mean that negatively if that has anything to do with carpenter and his 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 wanting and his insistence to have it be that way but then also what i find so interesting and that's probably why i was so surprised and i am bringing this back to big trouble in little china because what i had known him as is this director who grounds his stories even if they are insane like this killer guy who gets out of a you know insane asylum and goes on um serial killer path well perhaps but but then he has this this movie which is just so outlandish i think the escape movies are pretty outlandish as well escape from new york and then escape are they okay they're pretty they're pretty wild i think I then, think uh, Snake Bliskin is riding down like a. Perhaps I retract my statement because I'm not familiar with those films either. So, but he he is. I mean, Carpenter is definitely known for movies like The Thing, where right, it's just like this perfect horror movie with just incredible practical effects, and seeing some of that handiwork uh, translate over into a movie like Big Trouble in Little China with some of the monster design, and you can kind of like see his impact on on what you're seeing in the film. But you also get just this, like, the quirk that mm-hmm, you guys brought mm-hmm. up or just like this, like, 
I, I don't know. It's just, there's so much insane stuff going on in the movie. And I, I knew when we watched it, that you not knowing as much about the movie, I was kind of like looking over when things started getting weird and I'm like, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is the reaction <laughs> like, I was expecting. Like, am I, well, I think, and I, and again, I think just, you know, look, I love camp. Like I, I love Rocky Horror Picture Show, one of my favorite films. Um, I don't know if either of you know the pirate movie with Christy McNichol. That's uh, a whole other. Oh one. yeah, yeah. Another big video in the Crow household. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> love that film. So like, I am on board for those types of films. Um, I guess maybe it's all about perspective, and and that's again another kind of conversation we can have at some point because. I was like, oh, this is a John Carpenter film. Yeah. And when I think John Car- Carpenter, I'm thinking Halloween, I'm thinking The Thing, and I'm thinking The Fog. So those are the three films that I like know best yeah. of his. And so I would like literally like the mind blown emoji. I was like, what is the three? Happening? Uh, the three <laughs> I think they're called the three storms, uh, rain, yes. and thunder, and lightning show yeah, up. Love, that's do, that's yeah. the moment where we're like, what in the hell am I even yeah, watching? Yeah. Pretty Wh- much. Which got. Got ripped off about five years later for Mortal Kombat pretty well. Yes. Um, Uh, Lightning becomes uh, Raiden. Yeah. uh, And I can't remember the other one, but there, I know there were two. Yeah. Um, But the, the the guy that played uh, uh, Thunder, he has, I just want to say real quickly, he has possibly the best IMDB photo I've ever seen. It's just, it's him shirtless flexing and it's, it's pretty remarkable. (laughs) So what were were you going to say? Well, I think you're hitting on Anna because this movie kind of uh, forms a bookend with They Live, uh, which I don't know if you're going to do, but it feels very much like a director who had found a lot of success in those horror movies that you're talking about Mm -hmm. um, and branching out creatively a little bit in ways that are interesting. Uh, because those movies, I admire the craft of them, and I, I keep saying that they're not necessarily my movies. And it's mm-hmm. fun. And you mentioned the Escape movies, like Escape from New York, is kind of campy in one sense, but played at least like very, very seriously when you're, I watch right. it. And then, yeah, and then yeah. Escape from LA, which is essentially the same movie, mm-hmm. uh, is just everything taken up to a a funny camp place. Uh, this is very, and I think, uh, again, to go back to that great, uh, monument of cinema, Halloween three, um, <laughs> God damn it. The, the back, the backstory on that, that I heard was Carpenter had done two movies with Michael Myers and they'd want to do another Halloween. And he said, screw you. I, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm kind of bored with that. So he thought he could turn Halloween into like, uh, a franchise wherein it would almost be like what J.J. Abrams has, has done or tried to do with Cloverfield. They would just stamp okay. Halloween on something and he so could make a weird, like a weird movie. Yeah, he could make okay. a weird movie or he could just produce and make someone else make a weird movie. And obviously that didn't work out very well with, with Halloween. Uh, it might be the worst sequel that I've ever seen. I mean, I don't even know if you call it a worse sequel. It's it's sort of, it's not, it's not good as a sequel to those movies. It's right. not good in and of itself. There's a right. lot that doesn't make sense in and of it. 
the reason why I brought it up initially was I believe the town where the mass factory is has the same name as the town in the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers film. Oh. So that's sort of that's the ref that, that's that's he was very tuned into the pop culture of that time. Mm-hmm. And that's why mm-hmm. I think some of the references wind up in the things that he does. Uh, yeah, I think this is him trying to do an interesting genre comedy and very much playing into the comedy. And I think doing it pretty effectively for someone who is not, you know, a comedy director and uh, they live. It's a lot of the same. It's yeah. not campy in the same way, but it is quirky and then exploring some of his political thoughts and feelings in a way that, you know, is, is, interesting to see it to realize that in 1988 that there were people that realized that and we and we're, you know us 80s kids we aren't really the smart ones people at the time knew how fucked up things were uh <laughs> and also rowdy roddy piper having the longest fist fight in history with Keith <laughs> and uh i mean his quote the the chewing gum and kicking ass i'm all out of gum quote is that's is, where that's from yeah one of the things you know you you can you can just cut this out and save it for whatever you do where they live and whoever you invite on to that i did have a chance (laughs) to watch that with my partner marley uh early in this quarantine and we got to that and she was like wait is that where that phrase comes from (laughs) (laughs) i have the same reaction right now so one and this might be a nice nice way of kind of because like well okay let me think here of all the films that we've done, Derek, not that, I mean, this is uh, mm-hmm. it's number 12. Uh-huh. I'm listening. Most of them have been comedies. Yeah, I I want to say that Bloodsport's a comedy, but I don't oh, think it's... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. I, I think this is one of the more unique as far as, like, we don't even know how to categorize it. Yeah, so, yeah. What what chance did Fox have in the in the eighties? They if we don't know now, how how would we expect them to know then? I do think that um so between what you just said, Owen, about Carpenter kind of like flexing his like comedy skills a little bit, and then what I what I read about this film, this was this is where I was like really trying to connect with the film because I will say that like uh again in terms of like groundedness. Derek Derek might lose his mind right now. I probably prefer Bloodsport. Um it cuz <laughs> I that is that's kind of where I where I gravitate towards. Um that being said, well, I I think actually now that you mention it, there's probably the same amount of fact in both movies. Sure. Even though the end credits saying that that Bloodsport was based on his real life sure. story. We all know oh, that, that was that an was... amazing little epilogue. Um, <laughs> in any case, what I what I really gravitated towards, and I read this, and I don't hmm, I don't know if I would have picked up on it had I not read about it first. But the relationship between Jack and Gracie was supposed to be indicative of the back and forth and like the the verbal wit of like 30s and 40s screwball comedies yeah and that i loved um i don't know if they and look there was so much in the film i don't know what they could have done i i don't feel like it was like fully explored to the extent that it could have been i could see i could see bits and pieces and it, it you know uh two of the references that i saw is that they were 
trying to go after the same kind of tone and banter of uh, his girl Friday and bringing up baby two of my absolute because I am a screwball comedy fan. Yeah. And I don't know um, if they completely succeeded there. Yeah, I don't. Um, you know, here's what I can appreciate about the film, especially given that it is like, I mean, skewed so heavily male um, of the three women in the film. One barely talks the whole time. The, the fiance. Yeah, um, yeah. And then we have Margot. Margot was cool. Um, but uh, Gracie, like I liked that she was a strong character. I liked that she could hold her own. She wasn't to me a damsel in distress. Uh, she was. She was at one point in the movie, she, but she, she wasn't was, that. She, she wasn't that like caricature of right, what you would consider. Yeah. Right. I think she was a strong woman. And um, and I do think that they were successful in that regard, because that is something that is very indicative of most of um, the female characters in screwball comedies. They can stand on their own against yeah. the the male lead. So so I do think that they were really successful in that regard. And I can really appreciate that about that character in the film. So I think Kim Cattrall, she she did a great job. Uh, likewise, like she, I mean, she's definitely um, coming from a different place than the way that Kurt Russell embraced his character because she is more of the straight person. Um, she's certainly not buffoonish. And, and I think she did a great job. So, so I, I just appreciate that little, that specific way of bringing in comedy into the film because that's the way that I connected with it. Like I, I'm not really as much the person who's connecting with like the really broad humor and the, the different monsters and the crazy battles and fights. And I mean, I, I liked how they constantly reminded you just how out of his element, Kurt Russell, Jack Burton was mm -hmm. when I think at one point he it's like I, I feel like I don't know what's going on, and Eddie says you don't. Yeah. And <laughs> then uh, later in the movie, when Egg Shen walks in with um, some of the other fighters that they had seen in the beginning of the movie, Jack Burton asks, like he he's thinks he's going to be helpful in some way, and he starts talking to one of the fighters as if, like, I think he asks him, "Hey, do you do you understand English?" And the guy responds with, "Like, who is this guy?" <laughs> about Jack, like reinforcing that, like, you don't really even need to be here anymore. <laughs> we can all handle this ourselves. Don't you have like a truck to find? Right. So those were some of the moments that, uh, that yeah, cracked me up. Yeah. Yeah. It was... Go ahead, Owen. Okay. Oh, well, you're hitting on, I was just castigating myself because we've been talking this long and we didn't bring up uh, Kim Cattrall. Um, I think you're absolutely right that that character is not what they would have imagined her to be. I think I think I, I immediately latched on to when I was watching it again, that I think she says her full name about three times in the mm -hmm. scene where she is introduced, you know, Gracie, Gracie I'm Gracie law. <laughs> um, and I mean, if my last name was law, I would say it every time. too. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, they've got those ridiculous contacts on her because it was so very important yep. that she have green eyes. Uh, so she very much comes off like a Brenda Starr comic mm -hmm. comic strip character, mm -hmm. which I think it was part of what they were going for. And it is fun. Um, but I kind of this sounds like I'm grading on a very weird, weird curve. There wasn't a lot to that relationship between her and Kurt Russell to the point where the fact that they he just walks away from her at the end and they don't try to make it to a relationship i almost feel like okay yeah good job guys let's let's i, I, I appreciate us in this movie about 
uh, magical wizards and whatnot, that we are acknowledging some grounded relationship stuff. That you, this is nothing here. Nothing is going to happen. Come from this. You're a truck driver. <laughs> no, you're totally right. And that's funny because on the one hand, I was shocked because it went so against uh, the norm of mm-hmm. having some kind of you know happy ending. And also, I was uh, I I was happy hmm. about well, the way that they did that. But seriously, Owen, I mean, I'm I'm really impressed by the breadth of knowledge that you have about this film. I mean, you've <laughs> obviously like, and and you know, I know you said you you had your notes, but I know that this is this has already been a, a film that's been in your life. And I for some for a film that. Um, felt more superficial to me than a lot that we've done in the last couple episodes. You actually brought a lot of uh, depth. An amazing insight. Yeah, 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 an amazing insight to it. So, I mean, this has been fantastic. Like, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show to to talk about it in this way. Bringing unnecessary depth to pointless endeavors is kind of my brand. So I appreciate... (laughs) I appreciate the chance to, to shine with your audience. <laughs> it it really it really was awesome. Like you you made great. me think you made me think about this film, which I don't know if I was doing a lot of thinking last night when I was watching it. You succeeded so. where I failed. <laughs> so yes, this has been fantastic for sure. We'd love to have you on again. And you know, when I first introduced you. And uh, said that you are a fantastic screenwriter and TV writer. That, uh, for all the folks out there listening, was was no joke. Um, this is a gentleman who last year was a semifinalist at um, the Austin Film Festival for a screenplay. And if you do know anything about screenwriting and um, the certain accolades that you can get, Austin is is certainly right up there in terms of being able to find talent and um and showcase them so wanted to give you a much deserved shout out for that and you know i know the world has been in a little bit of a weird place for the last couple months and um i was just curious that you know for writers that's that's the you know maybe easier than other uh other creatives in this field i was curious if you've been working on anything lately Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Well, first of all, thank you. You're way too kind, uh, and thank you for saying that. Uh, I would be remiss if not saying that uh, part of my success there uh, was down to you uh, reading that script and uh, recommending me. So I appreciate you, you pointing that out. Um, but yeah, I did uh, complete two uh, pilots as part of a program that I was doing. Uh, wrapping up the second one, uh, well, starting and finishing the second one uh, within the quarantine period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if you feel this way. I know at the start of the quarantine, everyone was like, oh, this is a great opportunity to right. uh, write your novel. Uh, <laughs> did not work out that way. <laughs> um, well, sir, I, I yeah. feel like we have some time to go. So, I mean, no no, no pressure or anything, but unfortunately, it feels like this uh, state of things are, is going to be lingering longer than we maybe mm-hmm. all had anticipated. But, um, yeah. but, but no, no, it's just a, oh, sorry. Um, no, not at all. Yeah, but that was uh, a lot of uh, creative endeavor going into that, and that's being uh, sent around right now. 
So uh, looking forward to that. And just to give you a sense of how this movie has influenced me without me necessarily realizing it, because uh, you mentioned like grounded material. I also like grounded material. That's why uh, my first pilot was about uh, a woman who finds out that the neighborhood that she's trying to gentrify is uh, actually full of werewolves. And <laughs> the uh, next one was about uh, a man who uh, loses about 200 pounds and discovers that uh, he can hear alien voices and is recruited by a government agency to uh, fight them. <laughs> uh, Both of those shows need to be made. Yeah. I agree. Those- I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I mean, especially my goodness. I, again, another another topic that we could go on forever with. Um, I mean, Derek and I find a way to slam the Poltergeist reboot every chance we get. It was a little forced this time, but I got it in there. Um, but that, but to that point, you know, like to to just hear about original ideas that are fresh and fun and different i mean seriously the i i can't wait to read those so that's me telling you to email me those scripts <laughs> but um in any case owen thank you again for being part of this this was just so much fun and we definitely are looking forward to uh whenever we can have you back for another episode So that was our fantastic conversation with our friend and writer owen croak so yeah that was awesome it was it was awesome i what i really uh have enjoyed about you know we've done several episodes now with with various guests and i really appreciate how you just get such a different uh perspective on on the movies and everyone has brought really good information and perspectives on on like their memories of the movie so that was another great call that's one of my absolute favorite things about doing this podcast is that, you know, we we make an effort to have people as a special guest who have a um, a particular affinity for the film that we're discussing for that episode. And so far, I feel like we're batting a thousand in terms of having people on where it is so clear their love for that film and that brings so much to the conversation and it is fascinating to me to see how these individuals that we bring on think about the film how the depth of thought that they've put into what this film is about how the story plays out how it's affected them beyond just like watching the film yeah it's it's really cool yeah and that's like why I love movies because that's that's what they have the power to do would you watch this film again, Derek? <laughs> I mean, I watched parts of it again the next day after we watched it before. I started like scrolling through uh, through parts of it just to watch again. Yes, I, I will watch this again. I, I really enjoy this movie. It's just a fun movie. That was the first time I've watched it from beginning to end in a very long time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is definitely one on my list of movies that I can always watch. How about you? I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad that I now know what this movie is about. It's always really cool for me to learn about who was part of this film. I think that it probably won't be a film that I, you know, say like, hey, babe, let's watch Big Trouble in Little China. If you had it on, I would be fine with it. I've watched it a million times. I still am not 100% sure on what Egg Shen gives them all to drink before going down into the, <laughs> the, the deep underground uh-huh. below Chinatown. What do you think it is? 
Oh, is this our call to action? No, I'm just wondering oh. if you... <laughs> what do I think it is? Uh, maybe some kind of um, potion. Honestly, that... I feel like you just gave him like a shot of whiskey. Or or, or maybe a shot of whiskey. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that I was uh, not prepared for that question. That was very off the cuff. My apologies. No, that's okay. <laughs> so maybe that's our call to action. Because uh, we were debating, like, what can what could we possibly do as a call to action? I mean, I was one? just going to say, hey, have you ever been, traveled to San Francisco? <laughs> Let us know. Have you ever had to battle an uh, ancient sorcerer and rescue a damsel in distress? Anyway. Do you have green eyes? Let us know. <laughs> if you do want to get in touch with us, and we would love for you to do so, uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Same handle for all three. It is at 80s Montage Pod, and 80s is 80s. We would love to, whether or not you want to tell us if you have green eyes, if you've been to San Francisco, or any other thoughts you might have on the film. We'd love to hear from you. Okay. That What's coming up next? I'm so... So so excited. What is this it? One. Dun 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 dun. dun oh dun, wait, dun, dun, dun. am I doing that? Is it? Some... No no. You... <laughs> <laughs> is this uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? It is Raiders of yeah, the Lost Ark. I agree. Yeah, I don't like that name change that they implemented after the fact i get what they did it but gotta franchise that shit. you gotta franchise that so yeah so excited this is one of just my favorite favorite films and very excited for a special guest um to hear her thoughts on how much she loves this film and yeah that's it so in two weeks time we'll be coming back at you until then stay safe wear a mask we'll try to do better next time That's all I got. Thanks, guys. Bye.